My name is Joan, Joan Laverne B. And I am a very, very, very grateful member. A very, very grateful member of this fellowship called Al-Anon. It is quite an honor, as well as a distinguished privilege, to be asked, even on short notice, to tell you how it was for me, what happened, and how it is now. I said to my higher power this morning as I came down the highway, down the freeway, on my way here, that you have the strangest ways of taking care of and removing my character defects. I, uh, you know, I've asked him to remove that, that, that perfectionism about me, but he didn't have to do it in public. <laughs> and he certainly didn't have to take my pride along with it. But whatever, I do know beyond a shadow of a doubt that uh, my life and my will is turned over into, a care, into the care of a God that I call my higher power. And so I am grateful that somebody thought enough of hearing my story to recommend me to be here with you this afternoon. Needless to say, I'm scared to death, but the one thing that I know, even under all of that fear, is the very fact that I'm with my family. I'm with those who I love, and I know that I don't need to be, a lot, be real concerned about how you feel about me, what's important to me is how I feel about you. And because that's all I can control, and today I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that every person in the recovering community of 12-step program, particularly Alcoholics Anonymous and Al-Anon, you are my family. So it is a privilege for you to ask me to come and tell you about my story. The one thing that I am aware of, and thank you, Howard, for allowing my higher power to use you in conversation to kind of help to get rid of and handle those jitters. It uh, was really nice to, to share and to talk to somebody who talks back to you, and that's really, that was really a good time. It's interesting to me now as to how I can define good times, and, and uh, that was a very pleasant experience, and I say to you, thank you. I am, as I said before, very, very privileged and honored to, honored to be asked to be here I, the one thing that I do know is that my God, who I call, or my higher power, who I choose to call God, is a very awesome God. And uh, I, I had a, an opportunity to speak to somebody on my job who says that 
who related to me, and even though she was European-American, she related to me that when her spouse, her significant other or her spouse who was an addict or and an alcoholic, said, you know, when he gets high, he gets up in that room and he begins to uh, talk and I hear him up there and he sounds like a Baptist preacher. And I said to myself, uh-oh, she must have an African-American man because there is something, and I say that to you because this just look at my heritage if at some point I sound to you like a Baptist preacher. <laughs> but the one thing that comes across is the fact that I am enthusiastic about this person that I call my higher power and who I choose to call God. And God to me is a very awesome being, a very awesome person. And that's demonstrated in a story that I heard one time, and that story says when goes something like this, neither am I a good storyteller. So you might tell me at the end of this, you know, you can leave stories alone. But <laughs> this this story goes like this, and it says that uh, there was an old lady that stood out of the city hall, and when the lawyers and the businessmen went back and forth, she began to tell them about her God. And she began to witness to them that how awesome her God was and began to talk to them and about the miracles that her God had performed in her life. And at one time, this, this, this young attorney intern who through his education and his intellect, had begun to question the very existence of a God. And uh, she looked at him and, and she said, that's okay, and, but my God is still a very awesome God. And he went back and forth a couple of days and he finally said, come here, old lady, let me talk to you a moment. And he said, do you know that story of Moses and how Moses uh, parted the Red Sea? He said, I want you to know that it didn't take a God to do that. Any strong wind could have parted the Red Sea at that particular area. And uh, she said, what? He said, anything, just a strong wind. A tornado? Wouldn't even take a tornado. Just a strong wind, because it wasn't a foot to two feet deep. She said, tell me that again. He said, it wasn't, I can tell you, I read it in the history book, that the Red Sea at that point wasn't but a foot to two feet deep. And he said, uh, she said to him, Wow. And she then began to really get joyful. You know how we get, you know, really began to, to show her emotions right out there on the street. And he says, you didn't hear what I said. Wait a minute. Let me tell you again. She said, no, you don't have to tell me anymore. She said, that just proves how awesome my God really is. And he said, looking at her like he thought she was crazy. And he said, why? She said, let me tell you, son, 
said, any God that can drown Pharaoh and his whole army in two feet of water is an awesome God. And I want you to know that it's been miracles in my life as a result of this program that don't even compare to the ability of my God to drown the whole fleet of horses and army in two feet of water. And for that, I'm most grateful. I'm grateful today that somebody sat down and put together those 12 steps. For it is in those 12 steps that I have been able to find life and find life even more abundant. I recall that, well, I don't really recall this, somebody told me. But back on, uh, speaking of how it was back on October the 4th, 19, and I guess I better not put those other two numbers to that. Since I'm not married, I guess maybe I won't even bother to tell you what those other two numbers are, because you may put some prejudgment to it. But back then, there was a little girl and, who was born, and her parents called her Joan. It was in the Depression, and during that time, uh, finding places to live, Finding places to be was very difficult. And my parents moved around during the Depression. My mother was quite proud. And she'd tell my daddy after a couple of times, she tells me that she says, I'm not standing in those soup lines. Uh, we will just, I will do something and I don't know what. But she was very proud. But she moved around with my daddy from place to place because they didn't even have the $5 that rent was at that point. As a result of moving around during the winter, I took pneumonia for the first time. And they tell me that I was very, very sick, but their God restored me. So then I had a brother, and when my brother, by the time my brother got to be about 12 months old, and I was then about uh, two years old, mother was, and daddy was still moving around. And during that time, both of us took pneumonia and mine for the second time. When my brother took pneumonia for the second time, my brother died. I took pneumonia after that, before I was three years old. By that time, I'd had bronchial pneumonia three times and laid at the point of death in children's hospital. And ironically, I remember part of that. I was very, very sick, and the doctor said to my grandmother, and my mom and my dad, that you will be very fortunate if she gets up. You will be real fortunate because life has gone out of her left side. 
she no longer moves or, or has any reflexes on her left side. She has a 50-50 chance, and the longer she stays in the coma, the, longer, the less her chances will be. For that was before penicillin and before all of the miracle drugs. And I can remember that my dad prayed and prayed very hard. My grandmother kind of bargained with God and said, if you spare her life, I'll raise her. And I will raise her to have fear of God and fear of you. I will raise her so that she will understand that she's only living because of your goodness. Needless to say, God granted that desire. And my grandmother was true to that bargain. She talked to my mother, and of course she had to bargain with my mother, but because my mother had lost a son, she would have done anything to save my life. And she gave me to my grandmother. My grandfather now was a Baptist preacher. My grandfather then was a very, very stern, domineering Baptist, black Baptist preacher. What that meant in that day was that he was coming out of a generation that all you needed was the word of a man and his word was his bond. Whatever he promised you, you didn't have to think about it the second time because if he said, I'll be there, come hell or howada, he was there. If he said, I won't, I'm not going to do that, you could die and pitch 50 deaths, it didn't matter. He, his word was out and he said, I'm not going to be there, I'm not going to do that. He wasn't going to do that. And so I saw this kind of behavior. I often tell adult children of alcoholics that when they go to ACOA that don't think you have a monopoly on a dysfunctional family because some of us that never saw alcohol lived in equally as much dysfunction. For in me was developed a fear for man and God. My grandfather told me as I was coming up, if you do that, I will, if you get pregnant, for instance, was a good example, I will kill you graveyard dead. <laughs> and I don't think, I don't think there are too many folk that question when folks go to the graveyard that they're dead. And that's the way I was. I feared doing anything. I think sometimes the fact that I don't remember names very well was because of the fact that I didn't develop a skill and ability to remember names because it didn't matter. When I grew up and it didn't matter who came back to my grandfather and said Joan misbehaved or Joan didn't do what I told her to do then uh, that I didn't get a whipping and it wasn't no play. You know, you didn't, kids back then didn't go to downtown and didn't have nobody to call. 
and say my my folks are abusing me uh, because and, and I think that if they had and of course my kids say the same thing about me if they had they wouldn't make but one phone call because you best come and get them because the next time wouldn't be no breath there for them to call nobody if you know because they ruled their household as what they thought and how they defined parenthood was all about and wasn't but one 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 man and one woman that lived in any house i mean everybody else was kids when you got grown then it was time for you to go you didn't stay in mom and daddy's house then and tell mom and daddy what you wasn't going to do and what they had better do but it was in that context that I became a professional people pleaser. I mean, I knew that my very life depended on it. And I could look at anybody right straight in the face and smile. Yes, ma'am. No, ma'am. And underneath thinking, I hate your guts. But I learned very, very well how to do what I needed to do in order to survive. I could cry in a minute at home. If things weren't going my way, the greatest weapon I had was to cry to my grandmother. And she cultivated that self-pity. I mean, oh, poor baby. Reverend, you just got to do something because my baby is this and my baby is that. I remember that my grandmother would read my lessons to me or for me at night and tell it to me at the breakfast table. And I became so dependent. I had a real good memory. And she would say, no, you, you know, I need for you to eat your breakfast. And I'd come home at night, and I would do a little bit I had to do. And, and now you need to go to bed, and I'll read your lessons. And then she'd tell it to me at the breakfast table. And so I developed a helplessness that was beyond all compare. I was really, really helpless in the area of my higher power. Because of my loneliness, I developed a strange relationship with my higher power. I knew that somehow or other, that if I prayed about it, things happened. I also knew that my grandfather had a tremendous respect for prayer and for even my higher power. So my weapon, so to speak, was the fact that I felt that I knew his boss, his boss being the God of our understanding, and it worked for me. Whatever I prayed for, it wasn't long before I could see that being manifest. So I prayed, knowing now that it was just because that was my understanding that I thought that anything I prayed about, if I prayed hard enough, that it would come to pass. Pretty good student. But that was because also it was a way to win what I needed and what I wanted from my parents. I didn't study to learn. 
I studied to get what I wanted because I knew that if I got, went to school, got good grades, I could get anything I needed and most of what I wanted. So whenever I did take it, you know, whenever I studied, it wasn't necessarily to learn. It was because it bought what I needed. I was even a depressed child because when I could not do certain things and get what I what I wanted, it created a tremendous pain. Nobody taught me, wasn't taught how to handle my emotions. Oftentimes we hear, and I've heard in AA that when a person starts drinking their emotions, they don't don't grow, they don't they don't mature beyond that. And I have learned and have seen that it also works for me. There were that my emotional immaturity then uh, allowed me to do anything and whatever I needed and wanted to do in order to get from that other person. So not only is manipulation was manipulation a part of the alcoholics in my life, but it was like a battle to see who could out-manipulate the other. I was sick. I was really, real sick. And that's how I got to be. So when I married an alcoholic, what I have learned in Al-Anon was that living with the alcoholic didn't make me sick. I was sick <laughs> when he found me. And the worst part about it was that I was a self-righteous sick person. You know, I was the churchgoer. I was the pre I was the PK. I was the preacher's kid. He thought that because he had married somebody or lived with somebody before in order to solve his problem that he would go to church and marry a church girl. And he says, now, was I mistaken? <laughs> because it didn't matter that I was, I was a Bible-toting preacher's kid testifying, praying, and seeing the miracles work right before my eyes that it made me okay. I wasn't. And when you get that kind of sickness matched up with alcohol, alcoholism, you got something on your hands. <laughs> I, 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 I manipulated and talked to my grandfather until he said, okay, you can marry this guy. Because he said, no, you can't marry him. He's already been married. So Nate and I got together as to wonder what granddaddy would buy and and because Nathan had, had, was married to a, a uh, had, had been married by the Justice of the Peace, and my grandfather thought that couldn't anybody join you together as God would have you join together except a preacher, that he then compromised enough to, to say okay. And so when he married us, it took him about an hour because he wanted to make sure that I got the vows. And so he talked and he preached and he talked and he preached. And in the meantime, when even before I walked down the aisle, 
<laughs> the candles in the candelabras kept dro drooping. I married on June the 29th. It was so hot that the candles melted and they kept drooping like weeping willows. And I, every time I look at my wedding pictures, I said, even the candles knew I was going to have a hard time and they cried. <laughs> They cried for me. <laughs> so we, we, and, and, but in that, in that, in that, the course of that marriage and that marriage ceremony, I took on the attitude and took on the vows that it was till death do us part. So it didn't matter. I felt that I had it, I had to stay there. About 18 months after we were married, uh, the, our first child was born. And even though those first, teen, those first 18 months, you see, Nathan had decided that he would stop drinking. You know, I, okay, baby, I won't drink anymore. He had had an automobile accident, and he said, as a result of that accident, it lets me know God doesn't want me to drink, so I'm not going to drink anymore. And I bought into, you know, to that, I ain't going to do it no more. You know, you know how that goes. I bought into that. Okay, fine. So we married, and about six months after we were married, he started, and, and, and part of his, the pleasure of drinking is hiding it. If I say, just bring it and set it on the table, uh-uh. Part of his alcoholism and the pleasure of drinking it is playing hide and go seek with me. You know, you don't know I've been drinking. Ha, ha, ha. Yeah, I do know you've been drinking. All that kind of silly stuff to me, it sounded stupid. But that's, and it still is, part of the pleasure of drinking comes with hiding it. So he was a very functional alcoholic. Go to work. Always gone to work. Always, always went to work. Always spent his, he'd hide his month, he'd hide his paycheck in the trunk or somewhere. It'd take him two weeks to find it after the drunk. But the fact was he knew that that check was somewhere because he knew before he got high, he was going to hide that check so that he wouldn't spend it. So he puts that much emphasis on money. I put my emphasis on people. The two sometimes conflict. I want to give, I will give, and I want to buy everybody a birthday present, and it makes him drinking mad because it doesn't take much. But he, you know, you just don't have any power. You just want to give all your money away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we go through that. Then about 18 months came this son. Now this son, mind you, I also prayed about that. And I said, God, I want you to give me a son, and I want him to be born on August the 3rd. I want, and I do want it to be a son. A girl won't do. I want him to be smart, and I want him to be good-looking, and I want him to be a preacher. Pretty specifics, right? So uh, on August the 3rd, seven minutes after midnight, I had that son. That son was very, very handsome, very bright. His kindergarten teacher said that she had never seen a person who had as keen a sense 
of numbers as this young man, as this baby had at five. Uh, he, went, he won the state championship in spelling when he was in the fourth grade. So he was as bright as he could be. So I, I was always thinking that and praying once again that at some point he would be what I wanted him to be. Now, if he wasn't the preacher, then he had to be, well, since we got to work, worry about discrimination, he didn't have to be president of the United States, but he did need to be vice president in order to meet my expectations. Tremendous expectations. And I felt with all of my children, and I wanted five, six. After I'd had five, my husband says, that's enough. We won't have any more. I'm tired of washing diapers. I said, fine. So I did what was necessary so that we wouldn't have any more children. And then I went and got a foster child and adopted that one. So I was determined to have those six kids. That was the kind of determination and how strong and how much I thought I needed to be in control. All of those kids tried alcohol or drugs. But this one, the oldest boy, became an alcoholic and a drug addict. Uh, the first time he got in trouble, I told him, I promised God that if you got yourself in trouble, you would have to get yourself out. There are parts of his story that I you would never tell before, but I think I can tell them now. I think uh, because it has become part of my story. And that is that uh, when he was in prison, when he got his first charges in Oklahoma, and they charged him with... Um, with armed robbery, which he did, uh, I, hard, I asked an attorney to go see about him. The attorney did, and uh, the next 24 hours, I had come to my senses and said I promised him that the first time he got in trouble that he would have to get himself out, so I want to withdraw. He said, lady, I think you're crazy. Maybe so, but I need to withdraw. His higher power gave him 10 years probation but suspended every day except the time he'd spent already leading up to his trial. He was run over by a locomotive. We picked his body, the medics picked his body up between the seventh and the eighth car of a locomotive. And they thought he would be dead and there wasn't an organ out of place. Not one. He'd carried a bad back. And for most people, that would have been enough for him to always and for him to be able to turn his life over into a care of his God that I feel was a very powerful one. But it wasn't. As time went on, Nathan, about uh, six years after that, went to his first treatment. He came home and he says, Mom, would you join Al-Anon? I thought, sure. If this will help to keep you sober or help to keep you clean, I'll do anything. I went to Al-Anon for the sole purpose of doing what I needed to do in order to keep that boy clean because I was okay. You know, I was still okay. 
Wasn't anything wrong with me. Somebody said, this program is for you. That went over my head like a tin roof. You know, I didn't need anything. All you need to do is tell me why this boy drinks and how come this man keeps being, keeps rejecting me and why I'm doing all this suffering. Poor me. Nothing is going my way. I am. And if you just tell me how I can stop all these people from doing all this to poor me, I will be okay. So I went to Al-Anon for about three years, living my program, but realizing that I was not realizing that I was living that program in the back of my mind, in my subconscious, because somebody said, if I live it good enough, that they will see how good I was and how my attitude had changed and they would get sober. But boy, one day, one day, I found out that I didn't need, I was powerless. My whole life was unmanageable because within me, the God of my understanding only gave me a degree of power. And I could do with that power what I wanted to do with it. But I chose to use that power to attempt to control other people rather than using that God-given power to manage my own life. And my life is totally unmanageable. But then I came to believe that there was a power external to myself that could restore me to sanity. And the second time I got to the third step, I wouldn't take it. And the reason I wouldn't take it was because I was tired. So I thought of turning my will over in the care of God who was going to make me stay in that suffering position until I died. Those, these drunks aren't going to get sober and I got to stay with this man till death do me part. That's your will. I want mine. I tried it. It don't work. And no longer do I want your will. That's your will. I want out. O-U-T. Out. I heard somebody at that meeting say, at one meeting, was not talking to me and said, if we do this right, we can do it with the confidence that my high, your higher power wants for you, the same thing that you want for yourself. And that is peace, happiness, and serenity. I said, well, he sure hasn't been given it, and I've been doing this program now three or four years, and I still don't have it. But I hadn't got the program. I hadn't got it. But at that point, I turned my wheel over. I'll trust you one more time. You got one more chance. I, but I turned my wheel over. And then I could absolutely force step. And when I got to the fifth step and found that I could be honest, that I could identify all of the nature of my wrongs and I could tell somebody and I could really get honest and I wasn't going to get whipped. I wasn't and they weren't going to tell me that I was going to hell and they weren't going to tell me I didn't think you would do it. They weren't going to tell me you're the worst person in the world. They weren't going to follow me around to see if I did it again like the church folk used to do. I was free. I was home free. 
when they said, when my sponsor said to me, it's okay. What's so bad about it? That's okay. Realizing they were all just symptoms, family symptoms of the same disease. We call it alcoholism. But it also is just dysfunctional. Just simply not knowing how immature ways of handling feelings, not being taught how to handle my anger, not being taught that it was okay to be afraid, not being taught that I don't have to please everybody, that I am important enough to identify my own characteristics and my own needs and then use, ask my higher power to help me use that power. to meet those needs. Boy, that was that that to me was freedom. In doing those steps, I could make a list of those people I'd harmed. Took me a while to get ready, become entirely ready to have God remove them because some of those behaviors I'd learned as a child were the ways that I learned to survive. And fear wouldn't allow me to want God to remove some of those character defects. Because if I did, if I stopped getting angry with you, then that to me was the risk of allowing you to come across my boundaries and therefore hurt me again. Yes, my anger and my fear was what I used to make up those boundaries to keep other people from hurting me. So I, it took me a while to get ready to have, entirely ready, to have God remove those defects. But when it hurt too bad for me to stay the same, then I became entirely ready. I don't know what to do with all these hurt feelings. So you take them. And in my program, I learned healthy ways to handle my emotions. My program continued to grow and grow. I made amends, made amends to myself. But then in 1990, I decided that I wanted to give service even as a profession. I was willing to give it, but I wanted to do it full time and I knew that I'd have to take care of myself. Whether I was still married to this man or not, it was one thing that he always thought, and doesn't matter, I, I, there's no adult that I'm supposed to take care of and that includes you. I'm not supposed to take care of you because you're my wife. As long as you're able, you're supposed to take care of yourself. I bought into that. And one of the reasons that I bought into that, and I still buy into it, is because it gives me more freedom. I can't stand nobody telling me how to spend my quarter. When I wasn't working, that man would give me $10, and two weeks later, what did you do with that $10 I gave you two weeks ago? I didn't like that. So I decided, even after working 30 years, I decided that I was going to change my profession because this program had brought such life to me that I was willing to seek through prayer and meditation on a daily basis to improve my conscious contact and prayed for his will for me. And that will for me was that it was okay 
for me to dedicate the rest of my life to service. I went back to school. This time I studied to learn. I studied to learn. I wanted to get it. I took chemical dependency counseling as my major and I really wanted to get it. And I graduated in 91 cum laude. I really got it. I really did. And, but in the meantime, when the alcoholism with my husband got so uh, hard, I no longer, I knew that I could not expect him to change. I had to make a conscious decision as to whether I wanted to go on with the training that I thought that my higher power wanted me to do or whether I wanted to use my program. And I often say I could use my program and believe I could have peace and serenity in the midst of hell. I sincerely believe that. But I also believe the choice is mine as to what I want to do with that program. But I chose to use my program to keep me in school. And when I said to him, I'm allowing your alcoholism to bother me because you see, I had in somehow he had begun to see that I was taking responsibility for my own peace and happiness. I no longer charged him with, an, with a charge that he could not keep and that was to make me happy. I knew that if I was to be happy and if I was to have peace and serenity, it would come because I was living my making and allowing my making to make my living. And because I wanted to do that, then I chose at his response when he says, it sounds like you got a problem. I said, you darn right. I got a problem. So I had to make a choice. And I chose to stay in school and use this degree of power and control that my higher power had invested in me to do his will, to keep me in school and to go on. And I did that. We got a divorce. Hard. It's really hard to divorce somebody you've been married to like in one month or two months of being 40 years. But I had to make a choice. That choice was mine. Because I can use my program, we had some arguments, sure, some disagreement. But today, we're friends. We're friends. I know that if anything, I, I often say that right after the divorce, he went to the bank and he said, uh, uh, and, and, of course, he took my name off of all the money, withdrew the money, opened new accounts. Of course, didn't have but two quarters. But nevertheless, he felt he couldn't trust me with them two quarters because somebody said she's going to use your money. And so he went. But, but since that time, it's amazing because I live my program and because it works for me, not for him, not for the son but it works for me. And since that time, we have become, we know that there's no other two people that we know so far that we can trust the same as we can trust each other. But that's what living my program has done for me. In many instances, uh, I think last year, twice last year, once for sure, once maybe the year before, 
son Nathan and I would attend these meetings. But Nathan's disease kept progressing and progressing and progressing. And finally, Nathan gave up hope. His counselor has told me since this incident that he met him and he said to him, Nathan, why don't you come on back to treatment? And Nathan responded to his counselor, I'm tired. I just can't make it, John, and I'm tired of the struggle. On December the 8th, 1993, Nathan became the 100th homicide in Columbus. Somebody decided one single bullet and took his life. What I know, because of the result, as a result of this particular program, I know that it was God's will because any God that could save him from a locomotive could have saved him from a single bullet. And it's okay. It's really okay. I didn't have to keep praying for forgiveness because of the program, the gift that my baby gave to me some 12, 13 years ago was what I needed and what I could use to take care of that hour. And for that, I'm very, very grateful. One of the things that I sincerely believe in, and that is conference-approved literature. But I'm going to read this. I was at a meeting, and after the meeting, because the person didn't know where this came from, and I'm sure that she waited till after the meeting to give it to us, because lots of us don't like other stuff. But I'm going to read this to you because it means, it says to me what it means to let go. It doesn't say who wrote it, and I, but I, do, I want you to know that I give credit to whoever the author was to this. It says to let go takes love. To let go does not mean to stop caring. It means I can't do it for someone else. To let go is not to cut myself off. It is the realization that I can't control another. To let go is not to enable, but to allow learning from natural consequences. To let go is to admit powerlessness, which means the outcome is not in my hands. To let go is to try to change, is not to try to change or to blame another. It is to make the most of myself. To let go is not to care for, but to care about. To let go is not to fix, but to be supportive. To let go is not to judge, but to allow another to be a human being. To let go is not to be in the middle, arranging all the outcomes, but to allow others to affect uh, their own destinies. To let go is not to be protective. It is to permit another to face reality. To let go is not to deny, but to accept. To let go is not to nag, scold, or argue, but instead to search out my own shortcomings and to correct them. To let go is not to adjust everything to my desires, but to take each day as it comes and to cherish myself in it all. To let go is not to criticize and regulate anybody, but to try to become what I dream I can be. To let go is not to regret the past, but to grow and to live for the future. To let go 
is to fear less and to love more. I'm glad I learned how to let go and how to love. And I love you, Nathan, wherever you are. And I love all you. Thank you for inviting me.